Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geek Rant, episode 227, all about that bit. Recorded February 14th, Singles Oppression Day, 2016, and brought to you by Opie Productions. Element, Opie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where you can truly get your geek on. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Chris, the Command Line Godfather, Neves, and Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Mark, and everyone out there in internet land. I hope you had one heck of a week. And yes... Singles Oppression Day is almost over. Woohoo, we survived, everyone. And uh, everybody's favorite uh, Midwestern desert dwelling for, dweller from down under is back with us this week. Uh, Miles Wakeham. Hey, Miles. Hey, how you doing, guys? So the last time Miles was here, he launched into, well, let's just call it a tirade, about uh, Bitcoin. And uh, and so since we've been talking about uh, finances in general, and this week Bitcoin in particular, we thought we would just bring Miles back. And he asked me in an email earlier uh, before the show, he said, so what's the format here? I said, the format is Mark winds up Miles, lets him go, and tries to contain the ensuing mayhem. So that's what we'll be doing. But first, we have to talk about meaningless stuff, because that's what it's says so in the notes that's what we always do that's here right. that's what you have come to expect uh so yes it is in fact uh as seth calls it singles oppression day oppression day or singles awareness day or as the rest of us call it uh buy your wife some chocolate or get divorced day i.e valentine's day <laughs> oh it's not that bad mark come on i didn't buy my wife any chocolate i didn't either so she went out and but bought her did own. get some flowers <laughs> <laughs> and you, you probably spent more money because you didn't buy her any chocolate that way yeah I'm going to pay for it in other ways. Uh, My wife knew long before we ever got married that I was not the classic romantic type. Uh, I will do other romantic things like, you know, defragging her hard drive. Uh, That's romantic. Um, And making sure that, uh, you know, updating her her, uh, OS on her her cell phone. Those are are geek um, romantic things. Uh, I I always make sure that she uh, uh, gets an oil change and and that her uh, inspection sticker or whatever is. Every time I drive her car, it costs me money because I get in and I go, huh, well, this hasn't been done. This hasn't been done. Those are the ways that I show romance. Um, but in all seriousness, because you care. You don't want her broken down on the side of the road right. getting pulled it's over. Because I love exactly. her. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, is that a, I was going to say, Mark, how, how much does that actually work? <laughs> uh, you know, I really think she she hasn't divorced me yet just because she hasn't found anybody uh, rich. I think that's all she's waiting for at this point. Ah. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my pastor today in church threw out a statistic and said Americans will spend $18 billion this year on Valentine's Day. And I think I spent a good percentage of that at my house with uh, <laughs> with a wife and three daughters. Uh, there were teddy bears and stuffed animals and chocolates and, and trinkets. Just it was it was a Hallmark store exploded in my living room this morning. Hmm. Man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I so, feel uh, for you, Mark, but I can't quite reach. So, Seth, uh, would you like to uh, to expound upon your uh, new uh, national holiday of Singles Oppression Day? Yeah, you know, it's just an it's just a way for people. I mean, singles are always looked down upon because we don't have anyone to watch our back, so we get it from both sides. And I was just thinking about it, and I was 
you know, how can I say Valentine's Day being single? And I came up with Singles Oppression Day. So I think for next year, my goal is to have like a website and T-shirts. And I'm, I might really try to make a thing of making that the anti-holiday because it just it sounds cool. And there's a groundswell of just we hate Valentine's because it's nothing but pure commercialism. Literally so. started by a candy company, Cadbury Candy. Uh, so, I mean, not that Valentine's Day started, but the modern celebration of Valentine's Day. Uh, began as yep. uh, it is literally as commercial as you can get yeah they well, don't even pretend to honor any i mean it's not even saint valentine's day anymore it's just valentine's day yeah it's amazing how that all works when they change something for other things something like that so just very quickly i wanted to uh share with you my my friends not my audience. You're my friends. Uh, a personal milestone I had this week. I, I, for for business reasons, found myself on a plane uh, one day this week. And for the first time, I'm willing to say in my adult life, first time since college, I took a flight without using a seatbelt extender. So uh, that was a big deal for me and thought I'd hey, share well with the audience. Congratulations, Mark. That is a big deal. Yeah. Congratulations. Awesome. You're slightly less of a lard butt than you used to be. Um, but, you know, I'm, 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 I took that and ran with it. I still got felt up by security. Uh, it's the curse of being a big guy uh, because you have multiple layers there and all, all there in the crotchal region. Uh, things sort of gather up, your your boxers and your pants and whatever. And uh, every time I go through one of those things where they make you stand with your hands above you, if I just go through a metal detector, I'm fine. But the, the ones where I have to go through the, the imaging scanner, they always show up some things there. And this guy has to, you know, turn, tell me to turn my head and cough. So, uh, that happened. Um, I, I tipped him. I left a 20 on the nightstand, um, and then went on my way. You know, that, uh, that happened to me one time and uh, I could see the scanner read out and, you know, it puts a little red square around the trouble area. So I just lifted my shirt and showed it was just my gut and he <laughs> let me buy. <laughs> and I, you I know, I told, I, the, I told the guy when he was done, I said, your job sucks, man. I don't blame you for having to do this, but you spend your days feeling up sweaty fat men. What what a terrible job. Yeah, I, you know, it's I not a perfect have it. science. I would drive me nuts. The no. thing is, I, I've got a titanium pin down my arm, and only two times I've been through an airport where they where they flagged it. And it's it's solid steel, <laughs> like, well, solid titanium pin. They never flag it. I flagged it once in Chicago, I think once in Texas, that's it. Yeah. And I must have flown a hundred times outside of that. And I'm I'm not going to give any details because I am in fact broadcasting this live over the internet. But I got on the plane with a piece of contraband material. <gasps> I got felt up, and still got on the plane with a piece of contraband material. Uh, so yeah, it's it's theater. It's 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 cheesy dinner theater. It's not even yep. real theater. It's the kind of theater where once an hour the waiters uh, do a song and dance to you know tequila. It's that kind <laughs> of theater. Tequila, nice. <laughs> all right and uh so seth uh, uh since i've had a success story would do you have a success story you'd like to tell about your uh lumbering ex uh, uh enterprises well you know I, I haven't given up yet i am still running and i did 36 
laps on Friday. So, and it goes a lot better when it, I was actually listening to our podcast, um, and a couple of others. And so, you know, it, it makes it easier because normally if I'm just out there doing it by myself, it always happens right around lap 12. It's like, that's it. I'm quitting. And then I do, okay, I'm quitting again. I'm quitting again and quitting. And so I must, I must quit like a thousand times or I say I'm going to, but whenever I was running this last time, I had the podcast going and I did uh, rounds of three. Like, you know, I would, I would lumber three, walk one, lumber all the way through. Um, and, uh, and, you know, except for the fourth end, but so I was, I, I'm getting, I'm getting better. And one day soon, I will get up to my goal of 50 and then I will work on re, you know, instead of going three, one, then four, one and five, one until I can make it without stopping. Good. Okay. I hope you make it. Well done, man. Your motivation. Well, I, I you know, I, I figure hopefully this can help because if you're out there listening and, and you're a fat guy, you know, trust me, I'm a fat guy. I know, I know every thought you have. So, um, dude. You know, when you're listening to your podcast, just get out and walk during it because you don't, you don't realize that so much of running or walking or exercising is mental. And if you have something to occupy your mind, you tell your body, okay, go. And then you have something to occupy your mind. Um, your mind's not there to tell your body it's okay to give up. And the next thing you know, you've done something. Right. And it's important to have yeah. something to think about other than how much running sucks. Yes. Because when you're as slow as I am, you have a long time to think about how much it sucks. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else we need to discuss before we move on to um, Bitcoinage? No, I'm good. Okay. So we've got some news. Seth has done his job and, and pulled some news stories. But because I have previous experience with Miles, um, I'm going to cl- give him a clean runway and uh, and we'll cover some news if we have time uh, afterward. Uh, so I just want to say at first, um, I last week purchased uh, 0.5 bitcoins at then a rate a cost of about 180 bucks just just because just to see what happens. Um, and I've been um, you know poking around with it and and doing some uh um investing you can't really call that investing i've been throwing my one money away at uh get rich quick schemes that i knew wouldn't work from the beginning but i was just curious um uh, so uh that's my sum total of experience with bitcoin seth has had has done a little more he's been uh got a a thread in the uh the forums over at elementop.com where he's been talking about his experience with bitcoin uh so we'll we'll throw those in a little bit as time goes on um i i will say again that i first heard of bitcoin about uh when i first heard of bitcoin it was uh roughly one for one even a little less you could get maybe like 1.01 bitcoins for one u.s dollar uh and i have been kicking myself ever since for not having invested uh some amount of money in that but not too much because it's still, you know, in many ways untested. So having said that, hey, Miles, what's Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, let's let's get into it. So the way I look at Bitcoin is um, it's a three-legged stool. Um, the first leg is it's a, got a technology angle to it. The second leg, it's got an economic angle to it. And the final leg, it's got a social, cultural, and political angle to it. And all three have to be successful in order for the chair to stand up. Otherwise, it's just going to fall down and the thing's dead and we're all losing our money on it. So 
when I get asked the question, what is Bitcoin, I have to address all three of those angles and give them reasonably equal time. So since this is a, a podcast for geeks, I guess we'll start with the technical because it's probably the easiest one to understand. Um, so Bitcoin is a way of transferring value from party to party over the internet using a decentralized cryptography base. In effect, it's a protocol. Um, it's not coins. They're actually uh, transference of values represented in what we call a public ledger or the blockchain. So th this is where people start losing the whole, I don't get it, you know, Bitcoin's too complicated and it's scary. So I'll just set that stage to begin with and then I'll kind of come back to it because I think the other legs on the chair need some attention at this point. Um, part of what Bitcoin is, is why Bitcoin is. Um, Bitcoin is a, is a way that we as a society in the Western world responded to the global financial crisis back in uh, 2008 and so on. Um, you know, we, we found ourselves as a general society, if you remember back then as to what life was like, you know, every five minutes on the TV you had Occupy Wall Street or Occupy London or Occupy Sydney or Occupy whatever going ballistic and crazy. And it was really just sort of a pushback against our existing banking system for the most part. Um, I know living here in Phoenix, we were very hard hit by the economic crisis. I had personal friends just losing houses left, right and centre and, and it was a pretty scary, scary time. And I think that if we were to ask anybody at that time, what's your faith in the monetary system, what's your faith in banks, it wouldn't have been all that high. Um, that said, a lot of very smart people like to approach a problem and try and find a solution and Bitcoin was a white paper that was represented by somebody who is completely anonymous that we do not know who wrote it but went under a, a kind of a, a, a just a pseudonym of satoshi nakamoto so you can think of satoshi nakamoto as, as a man or a woman or a team of people we don't really know what we do know is this person was incredibly intelligent um had a very wide range of experience about the world from physics to money to mathematics to te technology, software, a real crazy guy, I mean, but came up with this idea that we don't need banks involved in our ability to transfer value from one to the other. And I think everybody kind of got on board with this. The, the reality is if, if I want to send somebody an email and they might be let's say in the philippines and i'm in the united states when i press send they get that email within what milliseconds really or instantaneous whatever the mail service can handle it and the question really comes down to well, why can't money travel at that speed i mean it's data right so why right. can't if i can send an email why can't i send money and when you get to that question you start realizing that we have this archaic flawed monetary system and when you try to work out a rationalization for why it is where it is it there's so many reasons why it shouldn't be and bitcoin if you, you talk to a lot of people about bitcoin they'll want to go into a historic history lesson on how money works and what money is and i think it loses the plot at the end of the day if i can send an email from from me to somebody else why can't i send money um and that's, that's kind of where Bitcoin steps in as a solution 
to be able to do that sort of thing. And in doing it, it affects economies, it affects social culture, it affects our ability to be an, an interconnected world. It kind of completes the mission of the internet, should, should you say. Um, the whole thing is, is important. And the technology that makes it happen, that's nice, but that's kind of like studying TCP IP and not really getting the, the beauty of a web browser. Um, you have to sort of look at the whole thing in all those different angles. Is that a good... Do you guys have some questions at this point? No, that's a really good explanation of what Bitcoin really is. So what we've done uh, in e-commerce prior to Bitcoin was to make up, uh, to, to do electronic ledgering. Uh, I've still got my my credit. I, I hate to even call them dollars because there there is no dollars in any bank other than, you know, whatever they have on petty cash. The, my money is not there in the form of liquid currency, but my credit is there. And so when I pay a bill online, for example, it's a, it's a, it's a shared digital ledger. Um, that what makes Bitcoin different is you're actually transferring, transferring the thing that has value. Um, it, it, it is much more like emailing coins than it is sharing a ledger. W would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, th I think it's the closest thing I can think of is kind of digital cash. Just as I can hand somebody cash to get something back for it, um, and I can't get that cash back once the transactions happen, unless the other party agrees to give it back to me, Bitcoin's exactly the same thing. Um, in fact, if you, if you think about it in those ways, it's like returning our entire economic system back to a basis of cash and taking away debt and credit cards and all those things that we've become part of our society and returning us back to a very simplistic sort of cash-based transaction. The problem with cash is I can't send it to somebody in Bangladesh. and um, You can. It just takes a while. Exactly. But when they get it, they have to go and exchange it. And when they go to exchange it, there's somebody in the middle charging a service fee and a charge and so on for them to do that, and they never get to realize the entirety of what I sent them. And Which, that doesn't serve me, and it certainly doesn't serve them. That's not unique to to currency though because as we talked about last week that in just sort of the, the the concept of economics uh or maybe two weeks ago i can't remember now uh the idea of um i have this thing of value and i want to because it's all about exchanging value i have something of value you have something of value when i want to exchange value for value um and you know even to go back to the earliest days on this continent uh the wampum uh being shared between native american tribes uh this was a thing of value that beaver pelt is a thing of value i will give you this thing of value for that thing of value um as soon as the transaction stopped being one person to one person intermediaries got involved and everybody takes their chunk so Bitcoin is not unique there. Credit cards are not unique there. Currency exchanges are not unique. Uh, anytime it's not one person to one person, if there's any intermediary, there's got to be some incentive for them to be there. Uh, they got to get their 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 pound of flesh out of it. So Bitcoin and others like it, uh, e-currency, to to even take it away from Bitcoin, their goal is to remove all intermediaries and take everything back to one person to one person, exchanging one thing of value for another thing of value. But then the tricky thing there is that the perceived value of that is different as well. So a Bitcoin is worth so many dollars and worth a different number of euros and worth a different number of, you know, Canadian dollars and a different number of, of lira. So it's, uh, lira doesn't exist anymore, does it? It's all euro now. Uh, but anyway, my, my point stands that, um, it's still, the value is still somewhat arbitrary. Right. Now, actually, you summarized it very well. I mean, that's the, 
this was, I think, the essence of why Bitcoin came around is because the the service providers in the middle, the, the middlemen, got so greedy and got so entrenched in the essence of the transactions that there was an effective rebellion. And the rebellion came in the form of the technology industry with Bitcoin. And that unto itself is a is an interesting dynamic because it's not necessarily uh, a slam dunk that that revolution has won, been won, been fought, been played out at all. Um, that's the interesting thing. We are in a process right now with Bitcoin. Bitcoin started out as just a really great piece of technology and a great idea. It solved a lot of social, political, economic problems. It went into a play, and now we're seeing the effect of that. And it's kind of like it's like dropping a nuclear bomb in the middle of the ocean. The ripples that pan out are huge, and we haven't yet been washed over by them. And uh, and and because of to, because of what you just said there, t- taking the intermediaries out, there's been an interesting uh, uh, viewpoint of it between uh, governments. Large, st- uh, stable governments don't like it. Small, unstable governments like it. Uh, because you're when you take intermediaries out, uh, you know American banks stand to lose something, uh, whereas smaller banks, uh, you know Peruvian, just to name something off the top of my head, they have more to gain because they are a, m- a more flexible, more fluid economy in general. Right. Um, in fact, I think it might help to um, to to put it in context to actually tell a real life story about uh, Bitcoin. Um, now I've been doing Bitcoin for a long time. I uh, just to give some background as to how I got into this, um, and and you guys actually really hit the nail on the head last week in the show. Um, I was one of those multiplayer role-playing game guys back in the mid two thousands. Um, I think back then, I think my game of choice was Dungeons and Dragons Online or something like that, and I invested way too much of my life in that game. Um, but there was this thing that used to log in and play that thing, and then in the middle of playing it, you'd get all of this spam popping up from people who were what we called plat farmers and what they do is they were little chinese groups of players who were there in there playing 24 hours a day farming loot doing quests and getting chests and swords and shields and whatever and then trying to sell them for real money and this sort of economy started to really take off in about 2007 i'd say um Around about that time, there was no way that you could actually transfer real money to these, you know, uh, I don't know, avatars. It was like the convergence of the physical real world with this digital Second Life-esque world. And there was no way that the economies of the two would ever meet. So in order to handle that, there were a couple of websites that popped up that would take payments uh, to allow you to pay these miners so they would deliver your goods and they deliver it in game you'd go to some taverns somewhere in a dark alley and this guy would come up to you and hand you the sword you bought you know it was kind of a weird transaction but it was digital i guess it was safe but when it came to the transaction of money the immediate thought was well you know if i give money to somebody for this thing can i trust that i'm going to get it It was always a big question mark so we needed um, a counterparty. We needed somebody in the middle who would handle that transaction. The biggest counterparty website out there that did that was uh, a website that handled um, tra- uh, transactions for the uh, playing card game Magic the Gathering. 
So that was not a game I particularly played, but these guys had created this website for it and they extended it out to other games like World of Warcraft and DDO and other things like that. So I went on to this, this site and the site was abbreviated Magic the Gathering Online Exchange or Mount Gox. You probably heard of Mount Gox if you ever heard of the mm-hmm. story of Bitcoin. Mount Gox was never designed for Bitcoin at the time. But what happened is you'd, you'd open an account up and you'd ship money over there. You'd wire it or you'd send it. or I don't even think at the time they accepted any form of digital credit card or PayPal or anything like that. But you, you would establish money in a bank account over there or in an account there. And then you would be able to move that money to the uh, platformer's account to get your goods. And at the time, this was kind of frowned upon inside the game, but everybody did it. It was just how it was. And so I had an open Mt. Gox account, and I thought, that's pretty cool. Once I got it established, I could feed it with money if I needed to get other things later on. Well, that sort of left dormant for a few years, and then I think it was sometime around about 2009, 2010, I had heard about Bitcoin, but not actually gone in there and done anything. I hadn't even read the white paper. But what had happened was that um, at this point in time, I was watching all of the scuttlebutt that was going on around about WikiLeaks. If you remember back in about 2000, and, I guess it was 2010, 2011, these guys were releasing all of these um, you know, documents. They did that, that video thing, um, the Iraq uh, video, I can't remember the name of it now. But anyway, they did a whole bunch of releases of stuff, and then all of a sudden they were like big in the press, and Julian Assange was running around being, you know, crazy man that he is, but he was, he was doing this stuff. And I thought, you know, as much as I, I'm not sure about the whole the politics of all this sort of thing, you know, I'll chip him a couple of bucks. So I tried. And the first thing he came into contact with was that because they were active in areas that were against the, it, the will of the United States or the interests of the United States, all of their banking facilities, one by one, were getting shut down. There was no PayPal. There was no Bank of America. There was no Visa. There was no MasterCard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember back then, as a result of that, you had all the guys like in Anonymous and all those sort of things, just like DDoSing all of these banking accounts because of that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, they just didn't have any money. But at this point, they posted, we will accept Bitcoin. And I thought, well, that's weird. Well, let me have a look. I mean, I just, I, you know, bought these swords and stuff on this sort of thing. What, you know, maybe I can kick him a couple of bucks. You know, I had some money in this Mt. Gox account. So I did. And it was so amazing to watch this thing happen instantaneously. And this was at the time, I think Bitcoin was about seven bucks a uh, Bitcoin. It was pretty low. Okay. Yeah. So you go in there, you buy a couple of hundred of them. And you're thinking, okay, fine. Yeah, stick it in the account. And then... I sort of didn't hear much about it, you know. You put, I didn't give him that much sort of money, but, you know, you, you, you just establish a balance in an account and forget about it. And next thing you know, Bitcoin's 1200 bucks. It's like, what? <laughs> what just happened? You know, this was $7 a month or so ago. It's $1,200 now. Did you cash and out? No, no, I didn't. I thought, well, it didn't really cost me much to get in. I really don't need to do anything with it it's it's funny um but you know it could just be a freak of nature and it's probably not i i didn't want to cash out i didn't know when it was what it was happening what it was going but what it did to is it triggered in my mind i better learn this thing 
This is important mm-hmm. to know. It doesn't matter what my position was in it. It was just important to know. Um, meanwhile, I uh, I run a software development company and internet hosting business. So we do a lot of uh, software projects for governments and corporations, academia, that sort of thing. And there was a particular piece of technology which we've been using from a long time ago and been working with a guy for decades who lives in Bangladesh. And every time he worked for me and I needed to pay him, it was really, really, really hard. It got to the point where we were Western unioning him money and I'd have to literally get out of my office, go in the car, get some cash at the bank, drive down to the local grocery store, buy Western Union where they charge me like 12% or some ridiculous amount of money, then say, okay, here's the, they had like an MT transaction ID number, get back, send him that, tell him, wait five days, and then you can pick it up with this number. And then he'd have to travel 50 kilometers in his region to go to the local Western Union place where he went and picked it up and then they took 18% from him. Oof. What? Okay, so that's that, that was crazy, right? I mean, how would you sustain that? How do I keep this guy working for me if it's that hard to pay him? But in his region, there's no US banking, uh, reciprocal banking agreements. There's no PayPal. There's no, there's nothing. I mean, if I transfer money from my bank account, like if I wire it, they charge me 50 bucks to originate the wire and they charge him $30 to receive it. And I'm paying this guy 300 bucks. So uh, it's just crazy. We're losing such a percentage. Over time, I eventually said to him, have you ever thought about Bitcoin? And he's like, well, I've heard about it, but I didn't really know what it's like. And, you know, I'm not sure if I can do it. And my country says it's illegal and I could go to jail if I do this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I've been studying this thing. And I found that these exchanges that you can set up an account for, often they allow you to have a debit card. So we found an exchange which was in Hong Kong called ANX BTC, ANX Bitcoin. And... I set him up with an account there, and it took him about maybe six or eight weeks to get all that KYC, that know your customer stuff banks do. They had to do that with him, but eventually he got his account set up. And then I took my Bitcoin, and I just transferred it over to his Bitcoin address, which he instantly got, got an email saying, hey, there's money here waiting for you. He then logged into their account, put it on his debit card, walked into his local ATM you know, in Dakar, put in the debit card, and for 1%, there's his money. In his hands. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I was his best friend. (laughs) (laughs) I had solved his problem. And that's when I realized the power of Bitcoin. That's when it all started to matter. Because now you start to see the importance of demographics and metrics and statistics. You see, in in this planet we're on, we have 7.1 billion people. Six billion of those people either non-banked or underbanked. They don't have bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some regions, for example, if you look at, say, Kenya in Africa, what they do is they trade between each other using their old feature phones with a little thing called M-Pesa. It's become so important that villagers can trade their goods and services, their, their crops, their whatever they make between each other, that it represents 46% of their entire country's GDP. Wow. Is done wow. on M-Pesa, right? So I'm thinking we've got 6 billion unbanked people here 
who are being killed at the border by Western unions, banks, and so on, and it's a big problem. Well, let me um, let me bring that story back home here to Phoenix so that it makes a lot of lot of sense. Um, I I use Coinbase, so you guys have been using Coinbase too. I I hear, which is great. Yes. I, yes. I love them. Right. So, um, what I found with Coinbase was that uh, because I have a business and I have a business account. They used to just accept my deposits into Bitcoin on a regular basis, and I, and I try to keep my Bitcoin transactions for the business separate from my personal Bitcoin accounts. Um, so I was putting money in there, and I needed to pay my guy in Bangladesh. Well, um, sometime around about November, I get this email from Coinbase saying, will you see that you've got a business account tied to your Coinbase, not a personal account? So we need to do enhanced identity scanning on you. And this is going to take a few weeks. And you've got to fill all these forms out and submit your business licenses and taxes and EIN and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do that. It's not a problem. So I did that. Meanwhile, this guy's been working on a project for me and he finishes it, does a great job, and I'm ready to pay him. And I'm not, I'm, I've got no Bitcoin. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be frustrating. I can't open up a new Bitcoin account quickly enough to be able to pay this guy. It's going to, I'm going to go through this whole KYC thing. Uh, how do I do it? Well, I met a couple of people in the Bitcoin community who were telling me about Bitcoin ATMs. So I went on the web and I did a search, you know, Bitcoin ATMs in Phoenix. There are two. But there are two, right? So I went down to my bank and I got $300 in cash. This is on a Friday afternoon. I find out where this ATM is. I drive into, it's kind of a sketchy part of town. And the Bitcoin ATM happens to be in a check cashing store. So I drive in and I park and it's in one of those strip malls. And as I go in there, what I see is about six to eight groups of half a dozen Hispanics all in little circles. And I'm like, what on earth have I stumbled into here? (laughs) Well, what I stumbled into was um, a whole bunch of undocumented workers which were being paid for their day labor work for the week in cash by their boss. And they asked their boss to meet them by the check cashing place because what they do is they send half of their money back to Mexico. Which is, you know, as as much as your immigration positions, regardless, they're they're looking after their family, right? It's a guy who's had to probably uh, cross the border, risk death, deal with cartels, the whole bit, to get over here to work as a day laborer, to live in the shadows and to earn cash and now he's going to send his money back to his family in Mexico so they can eat because there's no work back there. So I went into the check cashing place, and before I went to the ATM machine, which I could see off to the side there, I wanted to go up to the window and just verify with the lady that the ATM machine was working fine. So I go there, and I'm standing in line, and there's, I don't know, maybe four or five guys in front of me, all Hispanics with a pile of cash, and they go up there, and you know what they're doing? They're buying Western Union money orders. Just like I had to do for my guy in Bangladesh. And I'm realizing they're losing 30% of that money every time they ship it to Mexico. 30%. Mm. They risk their life. They come over the border. They work hard. They get paid cash. And they lose 30% of it to a bunch of banksters. This is not right. I'm looking. While they're in in line, I turn 90 degrees to the side. And there's an ATM machine. And at that point in time, I've said, I wish I spoke Spanish. Because I could tell them right now how they could avoid all of this mess 
and put their money in that machine and send that money instantly to their family back home. And that got me, that, that, that's when I really got it with Bitcoin. This isn't about the sorts of transactions that we deal with, like, you know, like, like the stuff, you know, it's fun to go and buy a computer on Newegg because they take Bitcoin. It's fun to go and book a, a travel ticket on Expedia or Orbitz or whoever takes Bitcoin. It's fun to do that. It's fun to use um, purse.io and buy on Amazon and get 20% off because you pay in Bitcoin. That's all great, but that's not the real story. The real story is these guys who are losing all their money to the banksters as they, they need to put money back into their family. And then I started also realizing I watch a lot of TV. I'm <laughs> guilty. Um, I found a TV show that was fascinating on, I think it was on the Food Network, and it was called Dangerous Grounds. Have you ever heard of this show? No. No. Okay. Well, it's this guy in Philadelphia, and he buys coffee beans from the best coffee beans in the world. Well, coffee beans, the the best coffee beans, are grown in very, very dangerous places. Colombia, some of the, you know, Mexican uh, uh, mountainous regions, Nepal, Ethiopia, places where if you go in there, you better have bodyguards, you better have fixers, you better have everything to be able to make the deal. And this, the story was this guy going through that whole ordeal, like, you know, like this kind of um, soldier having to go into a region just to find a coffee farmer that he buy coffee from. And when he finds that farmer and he establishes that relationship, he wants to buy bags and bags and bags of coffee. His clients are like the Four Seasons Hotels in New York and Chicago and these very expensive places that only want the very best. Well, this is what the very best requires, right? Well, it got me thinking, if there's a guy who's willing to spend, you know, put his life on the line to go and buy coffee, and there's a farm in, say, Mexico, I'll I'll use Mexico because it's easy for me to follow this. Um, If there's a farm in Mexico which could be employing workers in their local community and that farm could be paid immediately with Bitcoin, you can see how this plays out. There's no, you know, eight eight groups of people here in Phoenix doing undocumented workers anymore because now they can make money back home. They don't lose 30% to the banks because they keep it in their pocket. All of a sudden they don't cross the border. They don't need to. They make enough money. And it's all because of Bitcoin because they can get their money instantly. Hmm. And th- this it's a fascinating study, because it's a study about culture and, and society and the economies and, and the way it is. And the Bitcoin community, we, you know, I, I live with a bunch of programmers. That's how we are. But it's easy to talk about cryptography, and, and it's easy to talk about proof of work and how miners work and, you know, the size of a block and all, all this stuff. Fun and games. But that's not the real story here. The real story is there's 6 billion people on this planet who could be providing us goods and services if we can pay them for it. And once we establish that relationship, oh my gosh, can you imagine the stuff we could have? This is fantastic. And you can imagine their lives and how it would work out. It's just, it's just a, a dream come true. You kind of feel like once in your life as a technologist, you've stumbled upon something that can really make a difference. But well, the tricky, the tricky part okay. there to to, to inter, interrupt the the tricky part is what I was talking about earlier that the agreeing on perceived value, um, and that 
we haven't we don't have a mechanism for that right so it's the technology i'm not going to say it was easy but it was it was doable uh you know satoshi nakamoto uh who or whatever he or they might be uh came up with some really clever math to make this thing work and and we'll i hope we'll get into that in a little bit the 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 completely non-inflatable currency that they created it's the first as far as i know of its kind that literally cannot be inflated um and it's it's a powerful and, and interesting thing but we still don't have the infrastructure for assessing, assigning, and maintaining value. And that's why it's so volatile. That's why it can be $7 one week and $1,200 the next week. Yeah, that's true. But if you only use it as a remittance platform, the volatility would never affect you. If you're unless, a, if unless you're a mer- it, you know, Sorry, I, I mean, it moves, it can move dramatically uh, just within an hour. Right, so in the hour it takes you to send that guy his three hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, uh, you could have sent him three thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. Uh, of course, it only cost you three hundred, so I guess in that case you you don't notice the difference. Uh, but the the volatility, at least as I've been tracking it, is is literally minute to minute, um, and and it, it's possible, although unlikely, that you could get caught in one of those in a in a very negative way. But you know, we, part of that volatility. Yeah, yeah, part of that volatility is because of the small number of people currently involved in Bitcoin and the speculation that runs rampant in it. So if you get more people in it and that pool of Bitcoin gets spread out, then that is going to help to dampen the volatility. So, I mean, you know, and it's the same way with the, if you think of Bitcoin has a stock in some aspects rather than money, you know, that kind of clears it up because you can watch a stock and a stock can swing five, 10, 15, $20 in a day and then go back the next day. Um, so that, that kind of helps, you know, Bitcoin is like the stock money, um, rather than just regular money. That I, that's might a really good analogy. I like that. Cause yeah. you do have, you have the, the market makers, the market takers and the middleman. Uh, it's the same analogy. I like that. Yeah, it's not. It has gotten much more stable, at least in the last say twelve months or so. We've only seen movements that maybe between. I can't remember what the. I bought some Bitcoin back in two thousand at the end of two thousand and fourteen. I think I paid. It was really low. It dumped down to about one hundred and seventy bucks of Bitcoin. Um, it's at four hundred and four hundred four eighty eight is what I'm seeing. Yeah, and it and it's gone up five since you started talking. Right. Uh, so uh, well, hey, maybe I'm doing something. <laughs> so that you know, that's one percent, right? It's it's not a huge right. f- fluctuation, uh, but still, one percent in an hour—that's volatility. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, for example, you know, there, there are a lot of merchants now that are setting up uh, point of sale Bitcoin acceptance, uh, like you've got, you know, your Visa, Mastercard. Uh, type thing. Interestingly, you mentioned Bitcoin ATMs. I did a search for Bitcoin ATMs in the Atlanta area. Uh, I found uh, seven of them. Uh, They're in a Chevron food mark, uh, a uh, barber shop, a bookstore, uh, a gas station, uh, a bar and grill, uh, and three vape shops. Uh, So those are the people who who are doing Bitcoin ATMs in the Atlanta area. Yeah, um, and you'll find, you know, Bitcoin ATMs still charge a, a pretty hefty percentage, but it's by no means anything like MoneyGram or Western Union. It's Well, my it, ATM costs, cost, you know, three bucks a transaction. And if it's a $10 transaction, you know, if you've ever been at an ATM in the airport, you know that the transaction can be ridiculously egregious. So that's just the, that's what we accept. There's no reason for it, frankly, at all. It's just because the market will bear it. Right. Pretty much. 
Yeah, we. I did a. <laughs> I looked at the recipient side of it as well, and I used Mexico purely as a study because it was easy to do it because it's somewhat close to home. What I found was that the the market of recipients is very interesting. Only sixty percent. No, there is one hundred and twenty-two million people living in Mexico. Of that, sixty-two million smartphones exist in Mexico. The rest of the population appear to have feature phones and so on. So there seems to be about an 89% proliferation of smartphones slash feature phones within the Mexican population. Only uh, 7 out of 10 Mexicans have a bank, uh, do not have a bank account. So only three, 3 out of 10 actually have a bank account. Yet probably 50% of them have a smartphone and close to 9 out of 10 of them have a smart slash feature phone. This is a very connected society. Um, if you also look at the general travel distance from somebody to the local, say, pickup station where they can pick up money, like a Western Union pickup point, uh, it can be anything up to 50 kilometers. And often the people there do not have access to transport. They're, they're on buses or they're you know, sharing rides in trucks and so on. So there's a clear opportunity here that if in that particular region, Bitcoin takes off, we could be seeing a massive implosion just from one country to actually adopt Bitcoin. And that's the sort of business area I'm involved in at the moment, is trying to make that happen. Um, the effect of it economically is very interesting. You point about volatility, and Seth's right. The more people use it, the less volatile it becomes. Um, we only have a 6 to $7 billion market cap in Bitcoin. It's pathetically small. Uh, at this point in time, and compare that to the market cap of the US dollar and so on. I mean, it's nothing, right? But what we are seeing now is that as Bitcoin starts to threaten the existing infrastructure of banking, and banking uh, is not responding very well to that, we're going through this whole kind of... Um, banks are trying to... Well, uh, banks, I guess, or any interested party who's not going to benefit from the rise of Bitcoin is somewhat subscribed to a, um, a spin attack against Bitcoin to utilize any form of negativity which could actually be better explained in a technical sense. But they'll use the Silk Road, for example, uh, and online drugs and bad stuff marketplace on the dark web uh, who accepted Bitcoin as a transaction. And they'll use that to try to demean Bitcoin. The reality is Bitcoin is probably more traceable um, uh, transactional currency because it's in a public ledger than cash is by a long shot. In fact, if you ask any law enforcement agency, particularly those three-letter acronym guys, they would agree. They can trace a Bitcoin transaction so much easier than they can trace a wad of cash crossing the border to Guatemala or wherever. And so that that doesn't hold any weight, but that doesn't help Wall Street Journal and and Wired magazine and everybody else from spinning the story because it sells newspapers. Uh, we have the same issue with hacks. When Mt. Gox got hacked, everybody thought Bitcoin's not safe. No, Bitcoin's safe. Mt. Gox was was built for trading cards. It wasn't built as right. a bank. Is, is the dollar not safe because uh, Willie Sutton robbed banks? Right. You know? right. Or it's you know the Target hack or the Home Depot hack. The, the problem is intrinsically using things like credit cards for transactions is wrong because I have to give you my entire account detail, my account number, my expiration date, my security code and everything. And if you're the waiter at a restaurant and I hand you my credit card, I'm trusting that you're not going to go and rip me off 
because you've got the keys to my kingdom right there. With Bitcoin, you never have that. You have a key to a single transaction that gives you only the right to that transaction, nothing more. So let's use that, Miles, to transition into the technology of it, because that's a uh, what you just said there takes some understanding that per transaction, I get a unique hash that is only available for that transaction. No, They don't know my private key. I don't know their private key. Uh, it's a hash of the two and, and what that gives me that unique thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so so what happens is, let's say if I want to send you money, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for a wallet ID address or a recipient address. Um, typically, it's going to come in in this kind of 30-odd character long gobbledygook thing that you send me. I plug it into my, uh, my phone or my web browser or whatever I'm using to send money, probably from something from the exchange that I'm sending it from. And then I say, send Mark, you know, one Bitcoin or whatever it is, it's going to want some sort of two-factor authentication on my end. And then I go send, and thump, it's done. So what happens next? Well, that, that key that represents that transaction goes out into the internet, and the first place it goes is to what we call a, a, a Bitcoin mining pool. The miners grab that key, and there's this immediate representation of the key in a public ledger called the blockchain. It's like they write it into this ledger. You're on the recipient end looking at the ledger going, have I got this key that was designed for me yet? And when you see it pop up, you immediately get notified that you got the transaction. But it doesn't end there because we've got this one problem when you send money from party A to party B is you've always got the possibility that there's a double spend problem going on. If I sent the same money to you and the same money to Seth and the same money to Chris all at the same time, you'd all get approved immediately. So what happens is then uh, the miners take that transaction at face value and then they have to effectively do a, a kind of a proof of work on it. They have to prove that this transaction is unique, it's valid and it's legitimate and it's not represented multiple times on the ledger. That's part of the process of mining. To they keep you from through, bouncing a check, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. So they go through and they process this transaction Every time they confirm that it hasn't been pre-spent or it's not an existing transaction that already exists, they count one confirmation. So you'll be watching your wallet and you'll see over maybe 20 minutes, one confirm, two confirm, three confirm, four confirm. Eventually, it's pretty much guaranteed this transaction is safe. At that point, if you're a merchant, you might wish to release the goods and services to the customer because you feel like they haven't ripped you off, they're not double spending or anything. Um, in the case of an internet transaction where I send you money, there may not be an issue with that delay. In the case of a point of sale, maybe there is. The merchant would look at the transaction and go, do I want to risk the fact that this could be a double spend and give you the goods and services or do I want to wait? So you're going to find that merchants that sell small things, cup of coffee, um, you know, small things, uh, they're probably going to love Bitcoin because they don't care about the risk. The same risk could be happening with a credit card, by the way. You could spend money on it and then go to Amex and go charge that back, charge that back on Visa, charge that back on MasterCard. Next thing, the vendor's going, hey, I've got all these chargebacks. What do I do? I've got to prove these are legitimate transactions. Most of the time, vendor loses. You end up getting goods and services free and you get your money back. So the vendor's got a risk no matter what's going on. In the case of Bitcoin, it's a little more controllable. So the miners, as they process these transactions that are going on the blockchain, they get rewarded. 
and what they get rewarded in because you know mining is a very uh, power intensive, computing intensive, resource intensive exercise by design. So let, yes. let's talk about that. Uh, Satoshi Nakamura, Nakamoto, excuse me. Uh, like any currency, work has to be done. Uh, and in a digital currency, it's digital work that is done. And it, it starts by solving equations. So in the early days, any computer uh, could solve the equation fairly easily. And the way, the way the system is designed, as more and more Bitcoins get mined, as more and more value is created in the system, the equations get progressively harder. To the point now where you with your i7 cannot, you, you if you stumbled into it, maybe you might get lucky and mine something, but you can't do it anymore. You can't come across a new chain of numbers because it's scaled up. And the... And, the more the more it scales up, the more it scales up. It's a it's a it's a linear curve like that, or a, an exponential curve rather. So the more processing power you throw at it, the system automatically um, corrects for people doing what they did, right? So at first they were throwing uh, GPUs at it, they were throwing uh, PlayStations at it, and cranking things out really quickly. The mm -hmm. system was built for that, and now a GPU really can't do it. Now you need to have a system on a chip, some hard uh, designed uh, hardware specifically for mining Bitcoin, and then the system has corrected for that. And so now those people are cranking out at about the same rate that your little i3 used to uh, back a few years ago. And eventually it's going to get a certain point, I'm not sure, I don't remember what the exact value is, where you're done. There can be no more Bitcoins mined. So the system is designed to provide a steady growth rate no matter what you throw at it, you will grow no faster than whatever the preset rate was, and you can never grow past a certain point. So your Bitcoin right now um, uh, is at $400 per one Bitcoin. Once you reach the inflationary top there where you can't go any farther, the only choice is to start subdividing Bitcoins. So we won't now we're we're not talking about one bitcoin anymore. You're you're talking about uh, thousands of a bitcoin for you know a, a twenty cent, thirty cent transaction. If I'm going to buy some gum, I'm going to be talking about thousands of uh, bitcoins. Uh, eventually, I'm going to talk uh, be talking about billions of bitcoins. Is the how the system is designed? So that's my high level overview. Did I miss anything, Miles? No, you're you're hundred percent right. I mean, this is like saying I'm buying gold by the by the pound rather than gold by the ounce. We just break down the the unit of measure to something that's more appropriate based on its inflationary effect. And you're right, there's 21 million Bitcoins that can never be mined. That's math. You cannot change that. The rate of mining has always been limited based on Moore's law. The, the way the protocol works is that the rate of mining decreases over time. In July this year, we're expected to see a drop of 50% in the rate of mining. I see that as a massive opportunity for people to buy Bitcoin now and and go on the gravy train but i'm not an investment advisor or a lawyer and i play one on tv so you have to take that with a grain of salt but if things are scarce they go up in value so if mining is halved in july one would assume values will go up and if it, even if it goes up linear and it doubles your money you could buy a 400 bitcoin today and have a 800 bitcoin in july no guarantees everything could fail you could lose your money so don't do that if you don't want to if you've got thin skin but this is yeah. the 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 this is math you can't argue math it's just the way things are so that's one of the beauties about Bitcoin. you've never heard of really? common core have you <laughs> well sorry you know, yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> but no you, you, the thing is though um bitcoin to, to mark's point yeah you're right you have to have special hardware now uh, you need special equipment and 
the problem is that that equipment is expensive and mining is expensive and all of a sudden the miners will be de-incentivized for mining. Does that mean we'll have half the number of miners? I don't know. That forces them to buy faster hardware. But the thing is that Bitcoin isn't really going away. But- yeah, and so when you hit a when you hit upon this large prime that is the solution to the equation, you get fifty bitcoins. So 20, early 25, on, twenty five. Right. It's it's yeah. changed. Okay, right. Yeah. So initially, uh, it's right. I forgot that part halves as well. So mm-hmm. not only does the equation get harder, but your reward for it gets less as you go on. Right, and it will be twelve and a half in July. So it's it's going, and every I think it's every four years it flips. So you so you see- used to be able to go to the the Bitcoin. Uh, I can't remember the Bitcoin group, right? And click a button and they'd give you a Bitcoin. Here, have one. Uh, and that's when they were worth, they were worth nothing. Uh, and yep. the, they knew that the only way to give them value was to have them out there. Uh, and so there, there were a limited number of neckbeards who were willing to mine the things. So they had their machines out and mining them or they could, you know, the, the Nakamoto group. Uh, I assume I think it's a group. I don't think it's a person. Um, could have have minted themselves uh, several hundred thousand of them f- before any they told anybody about it. So they had this bank of them, and they were seeding the economy uh, with them. Now, if you could get a full Bitcoin just by clicking a button, I mean that would be huge. Uh, but only because the system is working as designed, it gets harder to produce them, and every time you produce them you get less for doing so. Yeah, what you're calling, Mark, those were called faucets, and faucets still exist, but now they're giving away um, thousands of Satoshis, and a Satoshi is one ten millionth of a Bitcoin. So you are getting... Three cents? No, no, not three cents. You're getting three one-thousandths of a cent, basically. You can make two to three cents an hour um, faucet dripping. Yeah, you know, the, the thing with the numbers here, which is really interesting, is if, if you look at you look at this from a pragmatic sense, from a business sense, um, you start seeing the upside is huge here. Uh, there are venture capitalists out there, and the one that comes to mind that I know of is Tim Draper. Um, he is, when the Mt. Gox, uh, no, I'm sorry, when the Silk Road uh, scandal hit and the FBI went in there and seized all the Bitcoins, they auctioned off the uh, proceeds of the seizure and he was one of the big buyers of the auction he went in there and bought a couple of million dollars of bitcoin or something like that which at the time was a lot and he went public i know i remember seeing this on bloomberg uh, on an interview with him and he was saying i believe one day that a bitcoin will be worth ten thousand dollars in fact he then had other people come up people very valid people people like Mark Andreessen, um, big venture capitalists, big pioneers in the internet, who are talking about the million-dollar Bitcoin. And this sort of thing has been spoken about. Does it, is it really going to happen? I don't know. But if you have a Bitcoin now and it goes to that level, then that's huge. That's really the, up, the upside potential on this is pretty much unlimited, much in the same way gold and gold mining works. It's also important to realize what stands in the way of this ever happening, because one part of it is technology and it is math, and that stuff is hard to dispute. The other part about it is human beings and greed and culture and politics and all the things that go into it that would stop it from happening. Um, is it going to happen because of regulation stopping it? In the United States, thankfully, no. We've got a very 
supportive government uh, regulatory environment environment for Bitcoin, despite the fact that we get a lot of uh, bad press about, say, the state of New York and their Bitcoin licenses and, and this sort of thing going on. The reality is that we're quite um, uh, libertarian, shall we say, when it comes to free market and allowing Bitcoin to exist and, and flourish. Not so in Russia, not so in China, not so in Bangladesh, not so in other regions where governments have a lot to lose. Because if you threaten the money supply of the country, you are threatening the integrity of the of the area. I mean, you know, what was the old saying? Um, you, you know, whoever controls the money supply controls the laws of the country, isn't that? I Something like that. Something like that, yeah. And that's true. You know, at the end of the day, ISIS wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the fact that they were paying a salary to the guys who took up arms. That, that's the only reason why they became so big, was they paid a salary to a bunch of out-of-work Iraqi soldiers. If we could have made those guys become farmers or become telemarketers or whatever they want to do in their region and paid them in Bitcoin, we wouldn't have ISIS. All right, I got to interject with the quote, he who controls the purse strings controls the nation. That's the quote. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Google. (laughs) Amen. So so we've got got these scenarios where economics determines um, war and and politics and, and all these things. And lo and behold, here's a bunch of nerd money that comes into play. How are, how will governments and big banks react to that? I've watched Jamie Dimon be interviewed about Bitcoin and to dismiss it outright. Um, I've watched Goldman Sachs do the same thing. At the same time, and this is interesting, those very same banks formed a consortium about a year and a half ago called uh, R3. R3's got 42 members right now of the world's largest banks, from Goldman's to Barclays to uh, JP Morgan and so on. They're all in there. And what they're doing is they're taking the essence of the technology of Bitcoin, particularly the blockchain part of it, and they're creating their own private blockchain. And their initial reason for doing this is they want to do interbank transfers. You know, so a lot of people don't trust banks. I'm kind of one of them. <laughs> banks don't trust banks. The reality is they don't trust each other. It's like a den of thieves out there and the only way that they're willing to transact is to use something that they agree is guaranteed proof of work and all the cryptographic that we deal with bitcoin they're willing to use it for their own purposes for interbank transactions what does that tell you this stuff's got legs it's not going away it might go away if they say hey um you know federal treasury uh, we control the central bank and you owe us $20 trillion or whatever. And right now you need to um, not allow Bitcoin to exist. Yeah, that might that might happen. I mean, that could happen in Brazil. It could happen in Mexico. It could happen in Russia. It's kind of they've been throwing around that idea in Russia at the moment. We don't know. And what effect is that going to have to Bitcoin? Does it shut us down? I don't know. Right now we're kind of flying under the radar. And it's one of those things where you can get in, be an early adopter still, and, and come out, you know, a billionaire. Who knows? Or maybe you'll lose your shirt. I don't know. A lot of things are out of our control. Uh, one thing to, that we haven't addressed is that the system is designed to be anonymous. Um, I, well, I, I don't know if design is the right word or not. It It is currently not easily trackable to a human. 
So if you if you have access to the entire blockchain, you can follow it back and uh, and look at the account which it was created and then like subpoena that account holder. So there are ways that it can be done, but the system itself provides for no authentication, no identification. You are your hash and nothing more, uh, which is good. You know, if you're a drug runner, um, and it's good if you don't trust the government and you don't trust the bank, but it's bad because that 30-something digit hex thing that is completely uh, unrememberable and uh, have no and, and completely unwrite-downable, or difficult to write down anyway, um, when it's gone, it's gone. And you, you lose that number, you lose your wallet and whatever value that is. And that value just disappears into the ether. Um, unless somebody else could stumble upon the hash, uh, there's no, there's no authentication, right? So if I could randomly generate somebody's hash that is worth millions of dollars, I can, I can use it. Now the numbers are big enough that the chances of me randomly generating it are, you know, infinite, infinitesimally small to the point of being con, uh, considered impossible. But the, you are dealing with numbers there. And as numbers get easier to generate, uh, in 10 years, that could be the the downfall of this thing because in ten years we may be able to uh, have machines that can just randomly generate hashes and cash in on them. Yeah, that's there's a lot of change though recently. I might say recently in the last say twelve to eighteen months. Um, in the United States, the bigger exchanges such as Coinbase have to abide by regulation under federal law for KYC or Know Your Customer regulations. What that means is that in order for you to have an account to be able to put money into Coinbase and then spend it, Coinbase generates that token, that ID of the transaction, and the ID of the originator of the transaction also tokenized. But if the FBI wanted to go to Coinbase and say, I've got this token ID, tell me who that customer is. Because Coinbase had to go through KYC regulations to verify you are who you say you are, you sent them your driver's license, you gave them your tax ID number, whatever it might be. They can then do just the same thing banks do, and that is you wired money from this into this bad guy's account. We want to know who, who originated that right. transaction. And that, all that boat. exists, but none of that is built into the system. No, it's not. But it's not also built into cash either. And, and in this particular case, it has a little bit better chance of being traced than it would be a bag of cash. Cash is still king. I mean, moving diamonds for across borders or moving wads of cash across borders is still the, the modus operandi of every bad guy out there. Right, because it too is anonymous and essentially yeah. untrackable. Exactly, exactly. And the same same thing I said about the Bitcoin is true. If I find your bag of cash that fell off the back of the truck, it's mine now. You know, so it, we have we have effectively digitally approximated cash, the good and the bad. Right, right. Is there no way? Um, and uh, the last time I looked at this, and I'm sure. This is a dumb answer, question, but there's no way to regenerate your account if you've lost it, is there? There's no fault tolerance at all. Well, you know, you, you don't have an account in the same way that a bank have an account, per se. What you've got is a collection of keys. Right, So it's right. Like, like, like a hard drive just storing keys. Yeah, if you lose the hard drive, you lose your data. Um, you can back it up. I, I don't – what I do, this is just, you know, it's good advice, I think, is that there is what they call um, – off uh, or cold storage wallets, and there's online wallets. So Coinbase is an online wallet as well as an exchange. Uh, so so is everybody else, you know, Circle and ANX and Uphold and everybody else. These are online wallets. They can get hacked. Uh, we've seen that before. We've seen that happen in many cases. But you can also use uh, offline storage. 
There's a company out of France, which I absolutely love their products, and I'm going to give them a plug here. They're called Ledger Wallet, and they sell a very, very inexpensive little kind of USB key-like dongle thing that you plug into your computer. And what it does is it allows you to store all of your keys on this dongle. But they do it in such a way where the storage has these very complicated, encrypted, passphrase things that allows you to recreate the content of what's on that key if it got damaged or lost. As long as you have that original set of uh, like passphrases and so on that you use when you set it up, you can always recover your keys. And there's nothing stored online. So you, you plug in the thing, you do your transactions. When you finish, you unplug it, you put it in the safe, job done. There's no one's going to hack you, nothing like that. And, of course, there's no reason you couldn't print out your your wallet ID, fold it up on the piece of paper, and take it to your safe deposit box, too. Yes, that's true. That that was commonly done in the early days of Bitcoin, but now we have a few more keys, so we probably don't want to do that. Right, because the, then you've got to know what your keys, each one is for. Because not only you have to keep up with your, your uh, wallet key, but also each of those transactions. If you want to verify a transaction later... You got to have that hash available too, right? Right. There's no receipt, so you no. need to be able to keep that hash. Yeah, I, I think the other thing with this is that you know Bitcoin is about trust and value transfer, and you know as we've discussed in the whole way how it can affect the world and how it can work technically and everything else. Um, but then there's the human factor of it. Money is all about faith. Um, your dollar is. I have to accept that your dollar is not counterfeited when you give it to me. I have to accept that its value has some intrinsic, you know, representation. It's a it, it's a piece of paper. When when people used to travel trade in silver coins and dollars came around, they didn't trust dollars. They wanted their coins, you know, because that's what they could trust. They felt that they could hold it and it was weighty. But the, that bag of coins that was their value. Which is why that. an American dollar has printed on it. This uh, note is legal tender for all debts, private and public. Um, that was the backing of the government that said, if you bring us these, we will give you gold. Uh, right. Because they needed something like that. Yes. I mean, bags of silver are not very portable. You can imagine trying to travel, you know, buy a horse with it. it it's not It's not a very effective way of doing it. So um, we always live in the world of faith and trust when it comes to money. And that's an interesting psychological dilemma because with Bitcoin, um, I I have lots of friends of mine who are in the investment space. They have businesses. They're very wealthy, except successful people. I'm lucky enough to have friends in those in those areas. Very, very, very few of them get it when I talk Bitcoin. They think I'm raving lunatic, you know, crazy anarcho-capitalist libertarian whack job. That's that's how they think of me when I talk Bitcoin. Until they start seeing it going up in value, <laughs> then they all like, "Damn, why didn't I get in back then?" You know, why didn't you know? And the thing is that I think for Bitcoin evangelists, for people out there who really want to try and grow the Bitcoin community, because ultimately we all benefit from that, um, it really comes down to being able to tell a story that the average layman can understand in regards to Bitcoin. It's not, and this is the tricky thing when it comes from a technical geekery world. That stuff doesn't really translate. It's very hard for me to tell my mother-in-law about Bitcoin. And and God bless her, she's a technical genius considering what she has to deal with. But she'll be open to it, but it's just about, it's not, they don't understand it, people don't get it. I get that. It's not what we're used to. It's very different. There are so many paradigms we've broken here. 
And if money is all about faith and trust, how do you cross that boundary? How do you break past that, that limitation? And that's a challenge the Bitcoin community has to overcome. I believe ultimately we will overcome that with some very good people out there talking about Bitcoin and helping to explain it to people so they're not scared by it. I think that the second that you start using it, you kind of get it. And all of a sudden, it, I, I'm amazed to see people who have never touched a Bitcoin before and then they start it and all of a sudden they're evangelists. They love it. They go crazy. Why haven't we had this before? You know, But it takes time for somebody to take that leap of faith and get to that point. If more people do, we then have a population which could take on any potential attack, slander, uh, regulatory shutdown, political maneuvers, and so on. But there's still no guarantee of that. So I, I always think of Bitcoin as being the, the ultimate answer to the world's problems, the, the, the medicine you need to take to cure the, the ailment, but it's really, really hard to swallow it. Once you so take I'm, it, you, you, know, you believe in it. Though. I'm looking at a, at a price index chart. And in, just in 2016, right, we're early on. The high price was Thursday, January 7th at 458.28. Um, the current value is right around 405. The low value was uh, just uh, eight days later, uh, January 15th at 358.77. Um, so if you bought on January 7th, you're a you're a donkey because you totally uh lost a whole lot of money but if you bought on january 6th at 429 and sold at 458 uh you made a lot of money and and that's what's driving the value right now bitcoin is entirely entirely is too strong a word bitcoin is very much in the hands of speculators right now who have no interest in bitcoin as a currency but only bitcoin as a speculative investment yeah, I actually looked at the market moves that we had in the last uh, 24 hours and I did a little research and asked a few people in the community what their take on it was. And it seems like, and this is a, it's a Sunday right now, uh, Valentine's Day, it seems like there was a huge move in China to buy a lot of Bitcoin. China's been um, threatening uh, deposit holdings of a lot of Chinese nationals and a lot of them want to get their money out of China. And little by little, the... Uh, Chinese officials have been attempting to shut down all channels of market moves out. But what we're seeing is that there's a lot of people going to the casinos in Macaw, for example, and they're actually buying Bitcoin in great quantities and it's affecting overall pricing. So we're seeing this movement out of fiat currency in China and into Bitcoin as a sort of a safe haven position. Hmm. Um, your point about market, maneuver, market manipulation is also true if you look at oil stock or the commodity price of oil. It's about, what, $31 or something a barrel right now for Brent, something around there. And, what, two years ago it was 106 So that's a massive shift. Right. Gold, gold went up $70 in one day last week from uh, its lows in the, what, the 1100 or so, and it, it's trading right. somewhere around about 1250 but, but, now. But my point there is that the, there's a difference between a commodity and a currency. And Bitcoin is being treated like a commodity but the long-term goal, and, and people, you and, and others like you, want to treat it as a currency. A currency cannot stand being treated like a commodity. Right. It it will the the system will implode on itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I think that the opportunity right now is for the unbanked six billion people on this planet to be able to start using it and to build their way out of poverty and debt, 
and to be able to you know provide goods and services to us which we've never seen before so I say that the reason I bring that up is I, there are smart people listening to this show and and entrepreneurial people and they're hearing this and thinking I'm going to go buy Bitcoin as an investment currency is not an investment and so if you believe Bitcoin is going well if you believe Bitcoin is going to be a long-term currency you cannot treat it as a long-term investment if you think it's going to be a commodity then you can treat it as an investment you just got to pick one and the the people behind Bitcoin and the people the enthusiasts as miles has been calling them all along the Bitcoin community they want a currency the the goal of currency is stability uh, there are people who trade on currencies all the time, right? People who buy euros and sell for dollars and vice versa. Um, but those, those people are the, the very, um, fringe of the market. But right now with Bitcoin, the people using it as a currency are the fringe. And so that, that's just my, my warning to you. Um, right now, the predominant, uh, mindset regarding Bitcoin is it's a commodity. If you go into it thinking that, that's fine. It's not ready to be treated as a currency yet, except within like an hour time frame, like Miles was talking about earlier, when he talks with uh, his fellow, uh, you know, in the other side of the world. Uh, they're dealing with very minute time frames, and and Bitcoin is too unstable to be used for anything other than minute time frames in turn as a currency. Yeah, I think that's a fair that's a fair statement at this point. I mean, I, it, it should be a remittance platform, and it can be immediately converted into local currency at the end point depending upon where the remittance ends up. Uh, BitPay here, for example, will allow a vendor to start up a, a, bit, a Bitcoin merchant uh, point-of-sale terminal, and then when they receive Bitcoin, it instantly converts into US dollars into their bank account. That, that that's what my sale. BitPay account does. I, you go to elementop.com, you click the, the donate button, the tip jar, you say, I want to donate Bitcoin. That is immediately PayPal'd to me uh, because I want a currency and not an investment. Now I have investments on my own that I've thrown in there and I'm treating them like the stock market, like a commodity. I'm, I'm, um, you know, buying and holding, hoping for the value to go up, but you can't really do that with a currency. So that's where I think the biggest problem, the technology is sound. Uh, I think the, the, the governments are more and more and more looking at it in a positive light. Uh, but in terms of, a commodity rather than a currency, and I, and I worry about Bitcoin making that that leap um, or, the, or c turning that corner from a commodity to a currency. And I don't think we can get there until we have that significant, till it becomes so hard to mine. Um, right. You know, when the scarcity reaches maybe not its zenith, but way up there, uh, in, in the same way that gold or diamonds. And the only reason they're valuable is because th they're hard to get. And there aren't many of them left in the world. So I, I think that we're just too early on yet. But I'm excited about the technology because I'm a geek. Um, and I love the, 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 the fact that everything is verified and, and that the verification is built into the system and that it is both collaborative and standalone all at the same time. You can't, you can't run a Bitcoin mining machine without connecting it to the network. But any one thing pulling out of the network or any significant, uh, you know, half or more of the system could crash and the system continues on. So it's both networked and independent. And it's a really neat design um, that could potentially be a good investment uh, if you're willing to write out some losses, but it's nowhere near a currency yet. I don't know. I it It is a currency. The problem is the pool of people using it as currency is too small. And has, every time somebody uses it, it becomes that much more of a currency and it becomes that much wider. Um, 
It's not. I, mean, I would love to be able to buy a pizza with a Bitcoin. I, that that would make me happy to to reach that point. But but at the but you know we're getting to a point where if you buy a pizza with a Bitcoin right now, you may end up having a seven hundred dollar pizza. <laughs> and wouldn't that be scary? That'd be and one heck of a pizza. It's interesting to say that the first ever Bitcoin transaction was in fact a pizza. Right. And it's probably something like a six thousand dollar pizza right now. You know, I made the statement a while back that uh, uh, credit cards, it's not worth taking your wife out to a steak dinner on a credit card if you're not going to pay it off because in the end, you've paid $7,000 for that steak dinner in interest. Um, it, it's the same thing with, with Bitcoin right now. Um, <laughs> I, I love where it's going. I'm just not super excited about where it is. So we're at nearly an hour and a half. And, and I know, Miles, you could probably go another hour and a half. But I'm going to give you two minutes to say your final thoughts about Bitcoin. Well, I, you know, it's a, it's been an interesting journey watching all of this, and I, I don't think any time in my career I've ever seen something that could potentially have the upside impact to the world that this has, and therefore I treat it very seriously, and I treat it as a, a very viable, uh, long-term position on Bitcoin. That's me personally. There are so many others that I've tried to tell this story to that have said, no, I'm not interested in that, it, you know, I don't want to know about it, I'm just going to stick to my stocks and equities and bonds and whatever, and that's fine, everyone to their own. You have to make a personal decision about Bitcoin, about whether it's for you or it's not. At one point, maybe in five, ten years from now, you can't avoid it because everywhere you go, there won't be Apple Pay, there won't be Samsung Pay, there'll just be Bitcoin. Um, maybe that's the way the world will work. Maybe not. I don't know. There's so many things. This could become the Napster to MP3s, or it could become the BitTorrent. We don't know. It could be anything. It could be shut down. It could grow into something that yeah. can't it, be it, shut it down. It could just as know. easily be MySpace, you know, exactly. here yep. and then gone. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, there are a lot of altcoins out there which are just forks upon Bitcoin, um, and I think of those in the same way I think of Linux distros. There's forks of Linux, whether it be Debian or Red Hat or whatever, um, there are altcoins, and we don't know who the ultimate winner is. The problem isn't the technology, and it's not the forking and the open source nature of all of this. The problem is take-up. It's who's actually going to be able to get enough people to use it so the currency stabilizes and that people want to actually use it. And I think that it's clear to say that really the only game in town right now is Bitcoin, despite all the alts coming along. Um, and until that changes, I think I'm just going to stick with Bitcoin personally. Well, and as the world becomes more interconnected, there is room for more than one digital currency in the world. Yeah, as long as everybody agrees that it's worth accepting and it has right. value and that they will send and receive it. Absolutely. Well, the the thing I like about these digital currencies, Bitcoin and, and, and like it is, they're, they're it's not conjured out of thin air. Work ha had to take place. There's electricity concerns, and there's there's uh, processor downtime, and and every every Bitcoin that's ever been generated costs somebody something, and I think that's unique about other online schemes, uh, and I call them schemes because this is designed from what you know the 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 work value thing, uh, and I like that idea about it. Um, it's not it's not wave your hands and money appears. It's do work and money appears, and I like that. It'd be cool if it was just wave your hands and money shows up, wouldn't it? <laughs> Except then that money would have no value. Yeah. Well, it depends on how hard you had to wave your hands to get said value or money. <laughs> um, 
did you think side question 30 seconds of answer no more no less do you think we'll move as a human society beyond the need for currency ever in the history of man chris yes or no i hope so um i'm for it i i have my little nest egg of bitcoins that i buy every month um i'm actually kind of in it i'm hoping that it turns into something big uh we'll see but i, Seth, I say yes will we outgrow currency yes or no uh no we will not outgrow currency we might outgrow nation-backed currency but we won't outgrow currency miles well when two people want to trade goods and services they don't trade a cow for a sheep anymore so there has to be an intermediate currency conversion in some way. But whether or not that currency represents something of value or something that's just some made-up number or whatever, as long as the two parties agree on it, it's it's going to work. And currency's been around since the dawn of time. Our first ledgers, our first uh, records of writing in history show things like transactional ledgers you know, back into Mesopotamia and Egypt. That's what you see. And that just tells you that currency and the ability to trade is just, it's in our DNA. It's how we are. I don't think it's going to go away. Gene Roddenberry envisioned a world where we didn't need money. We didn't need currency. Everybody had what they needed because we could just make stuff appear out of thin air. Um, interestingly enough, as that series developed, they started adding currency because to make the storylines believable. And I think humans need to keep score. And so even if we have the universal thing maker, uh, that Roddenberry invented, we'll still need to keep score. So there'll always be currency of some sort. Yep. I, 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 think so. I leave you with one thought. Imagine we put a, uh, a, uh, establishment on Mars. Let's say we actually go up there and we colonize. And let's say you need to send value from Earth to Mars. How are you going to do it? Put it in a ship. <laughs> Wait two years. <laughs> These are going to be questions we need to answer maybe five years from now. I don't know. What the answer is, I'd say Bitcoin's got a pretty good chance of actually being a part of the answer. All right. Great discussion, Miles. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us. Seth, take us home with your uh, what happened this week in history. Okay. February the 14th, 1946, INAC is unveiled. Um, they, it was unveiled at the University of Pennsylvania. It calculated a mind blowing 5,000 operations per second, which was a thousand times faster than its contemporaries. Um, it was also very huge. It occupied over 1,500 square feet. It weighed about 30 tons and 18,000 vacuum tubes made it go. This day, this week in history, INAC is unveiled. 60 years ago look at how far wow. we've come in 60 years well and think what we're gonna do in another 60 right that's just um, mind-boggling crazy stuff uh th that's what i was talking about with the the bitcoin thing right so right now it's just unfathomable to think that you would be able to create uh somebody else's bitcoin hash it's there's so many of them the odds of you reaching into the grab bag of of the universe and pulling out the same one is inconceivable but in 60 years uh, uh, what are we going to do 60 years ago um you know it was inconceivable to generate those hashes in the first place so that's what i worry about any cryptocurrency anything that relies on technology uh technology has proven to outstrip the ability to adapt to it always you know, all, going yep. all the way back to when uh, a sharpened rock was technology. 
the technology outstrips society and and it's still i think that will never change until our overlords take us over and we are we're all serving <laughs> the machines come on machines <laughs> all right seth what do you have this week to lower my productivity so that you look like a better hiring option okay i came across this and i wanted to share um Windows 3X software showcase on archive.org. You can kind of, and their um, browser emulations of them, so you can see what they do. Such things as WinRisk, uh, BrickBuster, a Windows 95 demo. Um, there's just all kinds of things. So these are um, computer programs that were designed for Windows 3, uh, 3.X, 3.1, 3.11 mostly. And um, they end somebody resurrected them and saved them and you can take a look at them and just kids see this is what the world used to look like look yeah. on and and tremble in in disdain and horror well yeah it, it's just for me it's a walk down memory lane for other people it might be um the seventh level of hell i don't know oh. but i enjoyed it and um, what used to be top of the line best of the best uh technology that that was showcased in CES conference rooms can now be run in a browser. Yeah, that's probably scary. your phone's browser. That's that's. <laughs> I I click this thing and I'm literally booting up an instance of Windows 3.1. I'm watching the boot screen. Is that the stock I, I, install that you're booting up? I don't know. It's it's running a game, but <laughs> this is just craziness. WinTrack oh. by any chance? Uh, no, I did the chess one. Okay. Um, and we're hearing it too. At least the people on the f yeah, you are. I don't. <laughs> I don't care about <laughs> everyone else. Um, wow. cool stuff, man. That's great. All right, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact <laughs> us. Let us know what you think. Are we all wet or are we completely wrong? Is Miles a nutbag? Let us know by going to elementopi.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, fill out the form, answer the world's wow. hardest captcha, uh, and, and send us a message. Uh, if you would rather send us an email directly, uh, uh fire up mutt and, uh, send an email to geekrant at elementopi.com and, uh, that will go straight to all three of us, and uh, uh, we'll read it and laugh about it or whatever there. Uh, or you can call 559-IMOP, leave a voicemail uh, message on our Google Voice box, and we'll play it uh, here on the show, most likely. Uh, I I want to know what you think. And next week is our uh, mini rant wrap-up, listener feedback, whatever you want to call it. All the things that you have to say about Financial February need to come to us uh, before, say, Saturday uh, of next week so that next week we can do a show. Uh, so far, the the uh, feedback has been a little light, um, so it's going to be a very short show. Uh, but let us know what you think, the whole Bitcoin thing, the whole currency, the debt, whatever you think uh, you want to talk about, let us know. Uh, do all of that over at elementop.com. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Miles, thanks for being a great guest. Oh, you're welcome. Not bad for a nut job. <laughs> I, you know, I, we always appreciate you having here. Um, and I, I'm not going to say you're welcome back every time because I'm afraid you'll show up every week. Uh, but you're But you're welcome back. 
at another time. I, and I love the passion with which you speak about this thing, uh, everything. I, I wonder um, if I ask you what you wanted for breakfast, if you'd be super passionate about the toast and the eggs for, uh, over medium with a soft yolk, uh, because you just seem to be that kind of guy. Uh, and I like I like spending time with that kind of guy. Uh, listener, thank you for hanging out with us for another hour and a half. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next week because that ends this episode of The Geek Rant. Thank you.